Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Now here's your host, C.W. Hall. What is up, everyone? Thank you for checking out the Health Connect South Radio show. On this, our 54th episode, Jay Schaefer and I sat down with Mary Beth Gandy, Principal Research Scientist and Director of the Wearable Computing Center at Georgia Tech. Their research center is a conduit between fundamental academic research and industry, collaborating with technology companies that are looking to advance some sort of innovation into commercialization. Maybe they need to conduct some trials behind that before that happens. Similarly, their research scientists will also collaborate with companies that are not necessarily technology-oriented and empower them to be able to add technology components to their non-technology products. An example might be converting what would be an otherwise ordinary fabric and adding to it, say, sensor components that make it then able to detect certain biometric data. Our conversation today focused a lot on wearable technology, including a collaboration with ShareCare around applications aimed at detecting and modulating stress. And we talked about how sensors and mobile devices of a variety of types are providing us with data that actually, in the end, will ultimately give us a measure of predictive capacity so that we might be able to head off a lot of problems before they ever happen, just based on the information that we have available to us. Here's Mary Beth talking about what brought her to Georgia Tech to begin with and why the research that she's getting to do kept her around some 20 years later. I actually came to Georgia Tech for my undergrad. So when my dad dropped me off in the parking lot in 1993 in my freshman dorm, I didn't realize I was making a lifetime commitment to Georgia Tech. But yeah, so I went there for my various degrees. And as a student, I started doing research. And I was also lucky that right when I was entering grad school was when a whole new crop of faculty came to Georgia Tech in, in computing that were looking at human-computer interaction. And one of those professors is uh, Thad Starner, who's one of the fathers of Google wearable Glass. computing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he was the one of the technical leads on Google Glass. So I was able to start working with him and others back, you know, in the late 90s, looking at wearable computing, augmented reality, virtual reality. And so I kind of got hooked on doing research and getting to think about, you know, what's going to happen 10 years from now. So I just never left. Stick around for the full interview with Mary Beth Gandy of the Georgia Tech Wearable Computing Center coming up next. Good morning, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host, here on the Health Connect South Radio Show, episode 54. I can't believe it's that many. This is Jay. And CW, I just want to say you're very mindful of the computer reboot right at the top of the show. So your stress levels, you would be in the green uh, no, during that process. You, you all can tell me. When you looked at me, did it look like I was freaking out? No. No. That's Mary Beth Gandy from the Georgia Tech Wearable Computing Center. We're going to be talking about technology as I was almost bushwhacked <laughs> and derailed by technology this morning. So we jumped off a little bit after the hour today, but here we are. Anything coming up with Health Connect South that folks need to know about? Well, everybody needs to save the date for September 21st because that'll be the big tent gathering at the Georgia Aquarium. So and always look at the website, healthconnectsouth.com, for the latest information. What I can say is that is a beautiful venue to attend an event, and I'm sure they're going to have some great speakers and panels lined up for that one as well. Well, that's been the case the last two years, and there's always the beluga whales in the background. That, ah, the that was the coolest, so that's, man. That Seeing was them dance around there. Plus, they did some, you did some of your interviews, I think, over in one of the rooms or some, somebody was there with Periscope last year doing some interviews in front of the 
the different fish tanks. Well, Mary Beth is a principal research scientist and director of the Wearable Computing Center. So thanks for taking some time to introduce us to what they're doing over there and some of the things that uh, technology is going to be doing for us around, I guess, wearable devices and and computing. It's, it's crazy what is able to be done now, and I'm sure it's going to be amazing down the road here. Oh, yeah. We're just at the beginning. Take us through your background a little bit. How did you get to where you are here? I actually came to Georgia Tech for my undergrad. So when my dad dropped me off in the parking lot in 1993 in my freshman dorm, I didn't realize I was making a lifetime commitment to Georgia Tech. But yeah, so I went there for my various degrees. And as a student, I started doing research. And I was also lucky that right when I was entering grad school was when a whole new crop of faculty came to Georgia Tech in, in computing that were looking at human-computer interaction. And one of those professors is uh, Thad Starner, who's one of the fathers of Google wearable Glass. computing. Yes. Yeah. yeah and he was the, one of the technical leads on Google Glass. So I was able to start working with him and others back, you know, in the late 90s, looking at wearable computing, augmented reality, vir- virtual reality. And so I kind of got hooked on doing research and getting to think about, you know, what's mm-hmm. going to happen 10 years from now. So I just never left. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you say you were working on the augmented reality and all of that back in the late 90s. Yes. And then that just shows you, I mean, how long it takes to get it to where it's really getting consumed. And and Thad Starner was wearing a computer in 1992 when, you know, at that point, it's all homebrew equipment that would like catch fire. Like a backpack or something. Yeah. And you can find old pictures online Mm. of the, it was called the Borg Lab at MIT. And there was a whole uh, cohort of, of people that were starting to think about what wearables could do for you. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the features in things like Google Glass come from that really early work um, because they were actually thinking very audaciously. They they mm. were thinking, what if I had this computer that was with me all the time that was just anticipating what I needed and it was just kind of giving me this just-in-time information, which is pretty sophisticated even compared to what we have on the market right now. You know, a lot of the wearables that we can buy right now are very much about passive sensing, um, you know, telling me how many steps I took. Yeah. And and the vision that he and others had back, you know, 25 years ago was far more sophisticated of where we're kind of become one with the computer and it's just there like augmenting your abilities and your cognition. I watched a TED Talk video not long ago in the last couple of weeks actually and a guy was it was um, i'm not sure what he called the device i can't recall but it was sort of like a google glass it was a visor type mm-hmm. device that was an augmented reality device so he could see through it obviously mm-hmm. but also it was projecting images on it hologram type images and he described the the computer as using your brain as the operating system I'm not sure exactly how that worked, but he was able to interact virtually with mm-hmm. objects he could see on the on the screen there. And then he could actually have someone else in another room. He could see them holographically and he could hand these virtual objects to that other person who could then manipulate them and move them around and open them and open files. So, I mean, I'm curious where that's taking us. Where, where, what's the plan? What are we trying to, are we all going to be walking around with visors on and well, computing as we go. Yeah. So there's a lot of excitement about these head mounted displays now, you know, and they come in different flavors. There's the kind of Oculus Rift, mm-hmm. like VR, where it just totally encompasses your face. They're the ones that what you're describing, which is a 
you can see the world, you know, you can see through the visor, but then you you can have virtual imagery kind of registered, integrated with the physical world. And then you have things like Google Glass, which are very tiny displays that are really like a HUD that's just showing information kind of above your field of view. Um, and, you know, really, those are just a tool. It's like It's like a computer monitor. I mean, it's just a different way of showing information. The real challenge is figuring out what you do with it. Right. Um, having done a lot of work in augmented reality, which is what you just described, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I think, I believe that augmented reality will be pervasive in our world in the coming decades just because it makes so much sense. Like, yeah. it's about taking data and information that right now is on our computer or on our mobile device and just putting it in the world. Not that you would necessarily want to do that all the time. I, you know, I don't, who knows? Maybe we will do that. But it's clear there's lots of information that needs, seeing it in the context of the real world makes sense. It's just like the virtual first down line in football when you <laughs> yes, watch live football. Right, right. Like that is a great example of augmented reality. And it's beautifully done. You forget that it's not, not real. It's not real. You think they're going to trip over the yellow right, line. Right. <laughs> but it's more than novelty. It's providing real value. Like it improves your viewing experience. Now imagine if, a lot of the information that you had like right now on your mobile device could just be viewed out in the world with whatever it pertains to, like as you're trying to put together the Ikea furniture or figure out how to, you know, fix your microwave or play a game or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we were talking before we went on the air today, getting in a little about stress and how we can use a, a variety of devices, many of them wearable, to help us modulate and detect stress. Mm-hmm. And, and if we can detect it, then we can, as I say, modulate it and maybe change our state a little bit because stress causes a release of a number of hormones. Those can cause inflammation. Then as we talked about mm-hmm. that gentleman that you just described, you fall over from a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. So um, talk about how we're trying to tackle stress monitoring mm-hmm. and, and stress in general. Well, you know, first off, the the sensing part of it is just the very beginning of the mm-hmm. chain. Um, and b- before the show today, you know, I was I was pointing out that for decades we've had uh, scales that can measure your weight very accurately, but that, that didn't make everyone thin, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> so the first technical challenge is well, how, how do you measure stress? And it's interesting. The more you dig into it, the more you realize there isn't one definition of what stress is. There isn't one physiological biomarker or behavioral marker or digital marker for stress. So there's lots of different products and research looking first at, okay, how do we measure stress? And it could be something sophisticated like analyzing your voice or measuring your respiration, or it could just be asking you to self-report or asking someone else to self-report. But okay, once you have that, what do you do with it? And I mean, this is the challenge with all kinds of wellness is there's the, 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 the cycle of getting some information trying to understand it and make sense of it, come up with strategies. Like if if what you take away from that data is that a change needs to be made, deciding you want to make a change and then figuring out what that change would be. I mean, a lot of the complication with things like managing weight and stress right now is you don't know what to do, right? You're not sure, how should I change my diet or my exercise plan or my lifestyle? And then sticking with it, you know, and adherence, which is another big challenge. You know, we see with these fitness trackers that people get them, you know, you get them on Christmas morning and you wear it for a few weeks and then you stop using it. And there's a variety of reasons why. So from my point of view, that means there's a lot of really interesting research that needs to be done. 
both technology-wise and then also in terms of that human-computer interaction component? And how do you build that relationship between the person and the technology? And how do you help them get real value from that technology? And from what I understand, there's some measure of collaboration with the folks at ShareCare around this. Can you talk a little bit about yes. that? Uh, so uh, my job specifically at Georgia Tech uh, and, my, and my team is to help translate the fundamental research from the lab you know, into industry. Because um, that's how you really achieve impact is getting these findings from the laboratory into the real world in various ways. Um, and so we do lots of work with uh, industrial collaborators. And in this case, ShareCare, you know, their mission as a company is to look at the quantified self and figure out how you can take all kinds of data collected from someone, maybe from sensors on the body, maybe from self-report on a mobile device, maybe from kind of passive information like number of emails. They also have this real age test. So they have a whole bunch of different products. They wanted to work with the university to do very rigorous scientific validation of their measures, and then also to work with us to try to figure out this really tricky problem of how do I translate data into real value and and positive lifestyle change. Uh, So we started working together or talking about working together back a couple of years ago, and along the way, they acquired this uh, voice stress analysis um, uh, intellectual property. And so they ask us to help them uh, study this, this, what happens when you would deploy this algorithm, you know, in an application to thousands of people. And so we're just now starting a, a true clinical trial of that technology where, you, you know, you have a control group that isn't using any sort of intervention. You have others that are using this technology for a, a significant period of time, you know, a couple of months, and then looking at all kinds of measures to see how the use of this technology affects them. And those measures range from self-report of stress to validated survey instruments that measure stress to biological measures of stress. And so what's the device like that we're talking about to to measure some of these things? Well, it's a mobile app right okay, now. Okay, so it's using your phone. Right. And um, so it's a software solution. Uh, one of the interesting things is that it's totally passive. So it analyzes uh, your voice when you talk on the phone. Mm. Do they have to calibrate for each user? It's kind of like Stepford Wives. They have you read the list of uh, words or do you just start? No, using you can just it? start using it. OK. Um, and it, it's not looking at the content of your conversation. Mm-hmm. It's just looking at like the frequencies mm-hmm. in your voice. Um, and so they ha- the the algorithm reports these different dimensions of stress mm. and uh they already had some data that they collected uh, because this app has been available. The beta has been available for for a year or so. So um, here recently, we took the data they already had. Now we didn't have a control group or anything mm-hmm. like that, but we took this data that they had logged from the, from the application and just started looking for promising trends that would help kind of guide our our true clinical trial. And what was interesting was there were some statistically significant differences in um, some of the dimensions of stress, uh, they differed between ingoing and outgoing calls, Mm -hmm. uh, which actually led us to think about this concept of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And it could be that this process of thinking about your stress level when you're on the phone. So like maybe we talk to each Mm -hmm. other and afterwards this app might report to me like, well, you seem kind of stressed. Or maybe I just think to myself, wow, I I felt Mm -hmm. stressed during that call. Then the next time I go to call you, mm-hmm. 
I might prepare myself mentally for that. Right. And it might result in me kind of reducing my stress level. Um, so, yeah, that difference between the ingoing and outgoing, so you realize the real difference there is when it's an outgoing call, you had time to prepare and you know who you're going to talk to. Mm-hmm. Whereas incoming is just an interruption, you you know, and you have no time to prepare yourself. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> We've been sw- speaking with the director of Georgia Tech's Wearable Computing Center, Mary Beth Gandy. And I mean, why why the voice? What is that one of the more easy things to measure, I guess. Well, yeah. So one of the, the real win, in, in my opinion, is you don't have to put on anything special. You yeah. know, you're not having to wear something on your body. And of course, I obviously believe in wearable computing because I do that in my research. But what's nice for this application is it is just totally kind of passive. Um, you just use your device as you normally would. And it's analyzing, you know, the, the voice frequencies and reporting something to you. So you don't have to decide to put on something special that day mm. or uh, engage in a really, you know, onerous manner with with, with the technology. Um, so, yeah, voice is one good measure. It seems like the one of the values is immediate feedback. It's not like yes. it's a blood test and right. you have to send it off and a week later you get the right. results. I mean, the challenge, though, is that it's, from phone calls. Mm-hmm. So like what I always say to chair care folks is like, well, I don't ever talk on the phone. <laughs> Can't try and get a millennial on the phone. It's <laughs> right, really hard. Right. Um, and so that's one of the things that we'll find in our uh, studies mm-hmm. with them is what kind of phone behaviors do you have for different types of demographics? There's people that probably only talk on the phone for work, people that only do so socially. Um, does their do their phone usage, does it change as a result of using this technology? Like maybe I would be more interested in calling people if I was going to get that feedback because mm-hmm. it might be a way for me to kind of purposefully probe my mm-hmm. stress level. And, and you mentioned some commercial applications like call centers, people or mm-hmm. tech support. Sure, sure. Yeah, so there's, there's other uh, technologies that have been around for quite a while that analyze both your affect uh, on a phone call with a tech support and also the content, you know, mm-hmm. so if you start saying certain words, you can do word spotting and know mm-hmm. like, oh, this person is particularly uh, angry. Call security. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's all kinds of interesting voice analysis that you can do, um, not just for stress, but that can detect uh, other kinds of, of illnesses, perhaps drug interact, adverse drug interactions, uh, whether you're inebriated, so it's very promising. There's a lot of information that's kind of encoded in your voice that can possibly be teased out by these signal processing algorithms. You talked about a study that that you're, I guess, preparing to do. Mm-hmm. What size do you think you'll be looking at? How many folks will you be trying to get involved? Uh, thousands. Um, I mean, ultimately, uh, I, I know ShareCare's goal is to try to get like a million participants in a study. I don't think we will be doing that right now. Um, but, you know, to get the real like statistical power that you need, we need to have thousands of participants uh, and we will have a control uh, because you always, that's a key thing is you need to be able to see what would have happened in that same amount of time, the same demographic if they weren't using mm-hmm. the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the data that that we had for this um, little initial uh, pilot work that we did, they had around 1,500 people who had made around 100,000 calls, I think. So we'll be, you know, going probably an order of magnitude up from that. From an analysis perspective, how do you, how do you identify the patterns? I mean, are you using some, some 
cloud computing type measures to try to analyze the frequency variations in their voice pattern against what they have reported as I felt stressed, I didn't feel stressed, that kind of thing. Well, so I, I'm i not necessarily privy to the everything under the hood about how their algorithm works because that came from the company that they acquired. Uh, the the things that they reveal publicly, they talk about kind of doing this fractal analysis of frequencies. So, but so basically, it's figuring out what frequencies are in the your speech, and then yeah, looking for these kind of repeating patterns that can then um, be over time. They've they've found these correlations between types of frequency patterns and dimensions of stress. Yeah, I think Sherker had an interesting press release after one of the debates. They had the presidential Mm -hmm. contenders. And when you get nervous, you might repeat the same phrase over and over again, and they can pick up on things Mm -hmm. like that. (laughs) So, I mean, I was looking at the website for the uh, wearable computing center and and, um, looking at how it's more than just we're we're not just talking about trying to deploy a phone, for example. We're mm-hmm. trying to develop devices and stuff. I mean, where do you see this kind of headed with regards to doing things like this around stress or right. other other bio data? Back, you know, a few minutes ago, I kind of talked about that the the grand vision of those of us that work in this research field is that you could have these computing devices that are very like elegantly just integrated into your life and that maybe in your clothing or your accessories. It might literally be in your body. It might be in the environment around you. But the goal is that it's, you know, right now when I use my mobile device, it's very intentional. Like, okay, let me stop. Let me pull this out. Let me pull up the app I wanted. Now, instead, imagine if it was this very instinctual sort of connection, like you have when you drive the car. You know, you're not thinking, I'm driving now and I'm turning and I'm breaking hard because someone, like, it's just kind of part of your, an extension of your body at that point and Mm -hmm. of your cognition. Um, so we would like to achieve that with other com- with computing technology. And uh, measures like this voice analysis, uh, not only can it be used very intentionally, like to give you feedback, um, it can be what we call context. Because if I want to have this computer kind of adapt its interface and the information that it's giving me uh, based on what I'm doing, and what's going on around me, it has to have that knowledge. And so analyzing like what I'm saying and who I'm talking to and what my affect is and where I am and what primary task I'm trying to do. If it knows all that, then it can help me, you know, just the way if I had a little person, a little assistant that followed me around all day (laughs) and was like, oh, Mary Beth, remember you have a lunch meeting or, uh, oh, here's some information about, uh, you know, working out that you might like. And, oh, here's, remember this paper, you know, I'm having a conversation and it reminds me, you, you want the equivalent of that, but you ha- the computer has to have enough knowledge about what's going on yeah. to be able We're to- still in the early stages of that. I mean, like Siri from Apple mm-hmm. and a- Amazon Echo, they're on the way to like HAL from Space mm-hmm. Odyssey or mm-hmm. something, right? Where it anticipates what you want. Right, right. So, so from the perspective of precision medicine, where does this fit in? Right. So, you know, people may have been hearing this term thrown around because it's a a federal initiative now. Um, and when you hear it reported, it's usually uh, spoken about in terms of genetics. Um, and so the idea that if we have a ge- your genetic profile, when it comes time to treat you for something, let's say cancer, that um, it's not just giving you kind of a one-size-fits-all cancer drug, but rather knowing this particular drug will work for you because of your genetic mm-hmm. makeup. Um, but actually, precision medicine is uh, much broader than that. And it's about 
tuning the intervention to the individual, where an intervention might be a pill, but it also might be a mobile application or a wearable system or a a method of like education. You know, let's say that you've been diagnosed with diabetes, maybe based on, you know, your demographic and your lifestyle and your interests and the 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 culture that you live in, there's a particular approach that will help you, you know, make the proper lifestyle changes. Um, And so I think that wearables are a really important part of that because we have, again, we have to understand you and and the people around you and the world that you live in to be able to figure out how to help you in the proper way. I'm kind of curious about how, like you talked about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we achieve that? I, I, I became mindful of mindfulness as a mm-hmm. concept a few years ago, and it's really become, it's really interwoven into basically every moment. Um, and I, as an individual, we were talking about stress, can certainly relate that I I am far less stressed out. I, I experience anxiety on a much, much reduced level versus what it was before. How, how are we trying to get at that? I mean, we're trying to detect it, but I mean, how do we, how do we confer that mindfulness? Well, it's not so much we're trying to detect it. We want to help you get into that state. Yes. And again, maybe we help you get in that state by kind of understanding the technology may understand what's going on with you right at this moment. And then because it knows you, it can provide some sort of intervention, like maybe it's showing you a, you know, a video of the beach. Maybe it's uh, some text that reminds you to think of a loved one. Maybe it's, you know, some playing a song that you really like. Uh, so the the it, that it's that loop of like sensing and being able to pick some sort of just-in-time intervention that will help you. Break the cycle before it spins out of control. Right. They, they talk about the, the, your conscious mind, they think now is maybe only 10% of your brain activity. And I heard the metaphor that it's the boy riding the elephant. You like to think that you're in charge, you're controlling the elephant, but really the elephant's got momentum of its own. So if you can do some things to say, this is the elephant doing this or appeal to the, mm-hmm. the music might appeal to the elephant and that will calm the elephant down and allow the boy on the elephant to right. get back in control mm-hmm. again. So that's part of the mindfulness that you, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's a metaphor, but that's a way to think about it. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so, so, so sometimes right. I say my elephant's out of control. That's why I like, I, I love having Jay on because he's like, he's got all these cool thoughts and phrases, <laughs> man. He really helps put it in picture. That's a, I mean, I think that's a great analogy actually. Well, th- I mean, that's what they talk about when they do the scans that 10% of your brain activity there have all these sophisticated tools is, is dedicated to the conscious, what we're doing now thinking, but your brain, you're getting bombarded with all kinds of senses. You're sitting down, your brain feels that, but you kind of, you don't attenuate those signals. You focus on, you can choose what you want to focus on, but there's a lot more going into your brain than mm-hmm. what you're paying attention to at any one time. So with our clinical trial of getting ready to do, are we focused on proving that we can truly detect stress with some accuracy through this way? Or are we also trying to show that when we do, then those people change their behaviors and reduce their stress levels? Well, really both. Um, so, you know, I mentioned before that we're going to be collecting other kind of independent measures of stress. And, you know, like I said, this is hard to get at. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, along with the measures that come from the voice analysis, we will have the self-report, we will have the validated um, uh, survey that measures stress. Uh, in a later phase, we'll be bringing people in for physiological measures of stress. So we'll have these various ways that we're trying to figure out what the stress level was at particular moments throughout the study. Um, but then we will also be looking at, um, you know, people's behavior and their their self-report of their um, sense of well-being and their activities and such. Because again, the mo- yeah, the most important thing is how do people respond to, you know, I think really for me, the bigger research question is what impact does it have on your life if whenever I talk to someone on the phone, I immediately get this real-time feedback and it causes me to stop and reflect upon the conversation and the person and my actions. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how people, what do they do uh, in response to getting that yeah, information. I'm very curious to see how, uh, particularly with that sort of information, I mean, for me, it was having to learn that I could actually choose mm-hmm. how I responded. Someone gave me a quote, I don't remember the book, but that, uh, the statement was between a given stimulus and your reaction is an infinite amount of time. <laughs> the concept being, whatever it is that might cause me to want to go, ah, I'm yeah. very angry now or whatever, uh, tell somebody they're number one in traffic. There's all this, there's literally, as it, as it says, there's this period of time wherein you can determine what your response will be. So I'm, I'm curious to yeah. see how how folks will respond to their phone zapping them saying, hey, you're <laughs> you're stressing out, man. <laughs> well, you know, and some of it might be helping people overcome this fundamental attribution error, you know, which is a standard uh, kind of psychological concept that we judge other people by their actions and we judge uh, ourselves by our intention. So when you <laughs> yes. when you cut me off in traffic, I think that guy is a jerk. Yes. When I cut someone off in traffic, I, I think I was like, I'm late to get my daughter from daycare <laughs> and I'm not a bad person. I'm just trying to get somewhere. Yes. Um it helps me, especially like with the road rage, because I spent a lot of time driving yep. on the connector, um, is trying to kind of humanize the other people around me. Like that person isn't trying to stop me from getting off at this exit. You know, they probably don't even notice me. They Who knows? Maybe they're just like super upset about something or they're late for work. And yeah, so, you know, for me, that reduces stress. So we're all going to have kind of different techniques that we use. I think it's interesting that we're starting to work on technology towards that end a little bit. I, you know, I know for me that the, the reduction of anxiety was, was huge and having a heart history in my family, um, that was a great thing to actually have that. It wasn't related to that. It was just, uh, uh, makes me think, oh, cool. It's one less thing that, that is, is uh, leaning me in that direction. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about devices, wearable, and, you know, even, I I guess the the phones are less so, but as I've read about the internet of things and their vulnerability to security, when we start Mm -hmm. talking about things like bio data, health information, uh, how are we tackling that side of things to make sure that they're not cracked? (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. So there's a lot of aspects to that. There's the like hardcore, you know, data security uh, techniques, like making sure that the the data is uh, encrypted and that it's on a secure server and controlling access of who has rights to look at what and tracking who's looking at what, when. And, you know, that's been uh, tackled a lot with the um, electronic health records. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know at, at Georgia Tech, some of my colleagues do a lot of work with with that. Um, you know, I think there's other aspects to it, too, which is m- making sure that people 
are aware of what is being collected and what is being transmitted and who has it and who owns it. And um, with some of the wearable products, it gets a little uh, sticky because the data may be going to their server, you know, and then what happens like if they get acquired, you know, for example, like that data then belongs, like you may be okay with company A, but when mega company B acquires them, now B owns that. Um, and if B acquires 20 other companies where you had little bits of data, you know, and now they know what I bought at the Kroger and my heart rate at different times and video from my house because I have an IP camera, then they could start to aggregate all that and theoretically figure out a lot about me. Yes. And my point here isn't that we should all be crazy paranoid, but um, but we need to be informed about you know, and in some cases, no data may be collected at all. You know, like with the, with the share care voice thing, it's not like saving your your um, conversation or anything like that. It's just like pulling out this mm. these frequency information and analyzing. It's just you know numbers. It's analyzing, but that does isn't necessarily the case. You know, for all, you could have a product that was streaming your entire conversation <laughs> to the cloud and storing it. And yeah, um, the NSA has the conversations. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> I think people need to be empowered and I think we need to be able to control, like I should have the ability to wipe, you know, get have that data removed if I don't want it stored anymore. Or, uh, you know, there's no reason that uh, a lot of services couldn't just be local to me. Like if I'm wearing something and it could be analyzing some information from the world around me or me, um, and it could just be locally, you know, like giving me some feedback or something. It doesn't necessarily even have to store it at all. Um, but a lot, a lot of uh, research into people's attitudes toward products, like it really depends on whether people think they're getting value from it. You know, there's this trade-off of like, okay, I'm giving up some privacy, but I'm getting something back for mm -hmm. it. And and you also need to recognize that you're going to have people on all along the spectrum. You know, I've talked to people that they would be happy if every single moment of their life was recorded because, and it was giving them all this great information that they could like hack their life. And and then there's other people who are like, I don't care what it did for me. I don't want anyone to know anything about my business. So yeah. it's like providing this, ch providing choice and providing information, I think. I mean, I, I think that it's with regards to your data being collected and aggregated and a picture being drawn about you that gets ever more accurate for commercial purposes, which is really the whole crux mm -hmm. of the matter. I mean, it's basically, it, it, it is, it's here to stay. And I think it's all but unavoidable, really. Um, I, I can't imagine too many situations where they'll let my information that I'm using your device or your application to you know, report what I ate today <laughs> to report my steps, you know, all of those things. There's, there's too much to be gained by knowing that about me. And, and to, today, I mean, if you look at, if you take away my devices and just look at my purchases. Oh, that tells us and, a lot. And whether I rent or own, we talked mm -hmm. about that with the folks from health grades um, mm -hmm. and how much they can learn about you from all of that. That's out there in all these different places and there's no mm -hmm. way for me to not have it be. Mm -hmm. um, I, as you say, I think that the key is to understand what you may be getting yourself or into. Just as have control over when you can yeah. opt in and opt mm -hmm. out. That's, yeah. Well, I mean, that's there's the right to be forgotten in mm -hmm. Europe, right? Where you can basically request that you just are wiped off mm -hmm. of the... <laughs> Down the memory hole yeah. or something. Yeah. From what? Well, I mean, what what, what purchase, sorts of purchase history things well, like that for the merchants? Well, so I'm I'm not an expert on this, sure. so I, but I but um, 
yeah, my understanding, it was basically like, remove me from the internet kind of level. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. Right. And I'm not, uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Give me like $20 I said, and I'll I don't know exactly uh, I'll, how that works or, or to what degree <laughs> that can be enforced. But um, I mean, I think it's the concept. Like if I wanted to just remove my, you know, in an ideal world, I could just snap my fingers and I would be gone. If you looked for Mary Beth Gandhi, you'd find nothing online. Yes. I mean, that would be very, very hard to, to do. It, but, you know, like one of the problems we have is how information just lingers. Like I, yes. I have friends that mm-hmm. they made some silly website like we, when they were in high school, mm-hmm. like a GeoCities website. Right. And you can't even access it. Like they can't even get to it to delete it. But it's just sitting up there. You it's know, a Wayback Machine. Or right. Something. That's <laughs> right. one of the sites right, exactly. that just uh, yeah. takes snapshots yeah. of the Internet over time. So something once it's there, it's not forgotten. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a very complicated issue that we're going to have to think about as a society. And I, I also think that our views of privacy are are changing. Yeah. I, you know, working at a university, I'm around a lot of younger people and they seem to have a different attitude toward privacy than mm-hmm. like people from my generation. Yeah, uh, uh, being transparent to a large extent with their life and, and exhibiting their life to the world is really, that's, I mean, that's what the young people are doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my daughter's, 12 getting ready to be 13 and that you know that age group i i think is even more so than the millennials that we've talked did, about did it really happen if it's not on instagram <laughs> yeah that's seriously the, uh, yeah but i think part of what we're trying to talk about you said there's the stimulus and then the response and you've got that time in between and you can use the information from these machines to help you craft your response mm-hmm. P- particularly so. if you're starting to get it in more real time in the moment in an elegant way that doesn't now deter my information or my attention over to Mm -hmm. now this thing is telling me something. If it gets to where it's as subtle as the first down marker, Mm -hmm. then (laughs) I I think that it'll really begin to truly have some effect on us without Mm -hmm. distracting us at the same time. Yeah. I mean, look at all the criticisms of our mobile device based society that we have right now, which, you know, the, the tropes of like people are just looking at their phones, they're not interacting with each other. Uh, they're, you know, tripping as they're, wa- I did this the other day, I was trying to text, you know, as I'm walking into a meeting. So, I'd like, some of the cities have a lane on the sidewalk where if you're yeah, texting, you yeah. walk down these, between um, these lines. And I think it's, um, I think that's just because in this moment in time, we, we have these devices that are they are extremely mobile, but they, they're they not that next step, which is yes. kind of integrated yes. into a, yeah. us. So you're still having to really focus your attention on them. It's like, let me pull this out of my pocket. It may, taking one or both of my hands. It's taking mm-hmm. all of my visual field. Um, it's taking a ton of my attention. And instead, can we craft these very subtle and, you know, you realize the modalities can be visual, but they can be auditory. They can be tactile. Yeah. Um where you're not even really consciously thinking about the fact that you're getting these little subtle cues. Right. And that's what I'm talking about mm-hmm. is so that you can get feedback and and seamlessly integrate it without having to stop right. what you're doing or break your focus mm-hmm. to act on it. And, and that contextual awareness is key because what I really want is for my system to know like, Oh, right at this moment, I'm like, you know, driving through a rainstorm. I can barely see. And, and you know, sometimes when I'm in that situation, I like turn off the radio. Yes, and, right. um, and so you need, if you're going to have these wearables that are just with you all the time, they need to scale their presentation and be able to sense like, okay, she needs all of her cognitive resources right now. So I'm going to do nothing unless it's like 
really, really important versus if I'm just sitting having a coffee at the coffee shop, you know, it might be inter, uh, interacting with me in a much more substantial way. We've been speaking with Mary Beth Gandy, director at the Georgia Tech Wearable Computing Center. And part of what we're all about here, Mary Beth, is getting the word out about what you're looking for with regards to collaboration, resources, partnerships, whatever the case may be. Are there things, whether it's around this particular study or other efforts that you're working on that that you sit around the, the boardroom going, geez, we need this. If only we had access to that, we could really zoom forward. Uh, well, people can uh, uh, volunteer to sign up for our clinical trial. If you go to our website at www.imtc.gotech.edu. Um, but, you know, in terms of collaborations, like what's exciting for me right now, you know, having worked in this wearable and augmented reality space for a long time, is that finally these things can leave the lab. You know, when I first started running like AR studies, you know, you had backpacks filled with computers and crazy head-mounted displays, and you could build systems and you could test them. And so, you know, we can show very, you know, quantifiable value of deploying like AR and wearables in, you know, settings like uh, manufacturing, for example. But you couldn't then actually put it into the factory because mm -hmm. the the equipment would have cost $100,000 a person and it, you know, would have yes. electrocuted them. And, <laughs> um, but now we can deploy these things. Um, you know, it's the reason that Google Glass came along because we'd just gotten to the point where batteries are small enough. You can, mm. the computing power is powerful enough and small enough. And like, so it was this critical moment technology-wise, you could take these ideas from the lab and get them out into the world. Um, so what I'm seeing right now with wearables is um, we're starting a lot of collaborations with non-tech companies. Because if you think about it, there's all these existing companies that make products that are prime to become smart, you know, like uh, whether it's an apparel manufacturer, you know, a lot of those companies have been around for a hundred years, you know, and they're not used to making apps or <laughs> doing tech support, but they're thinking about, hey, we have this, you know, wearable garment mm -hmm. that million, I mean, we sell million, millions of units, why not? have some sensing in there or, or some sort of computing technology. Uh, so that's, but that's really fun to, you know, not, typically I work with a lot of tech companies. So then suddenly to be working with these kind of more traditional companies, whether they make toys or clothes or sports equipment, we're, we're doing a project right now for a company uh, that had like a little product to, a non-technology product to teach you how to pitch a baseball. Hmm. Um there was just like a net, you know, that attaches mm -hmm. to your arm, basically. So we've been working with them for like a year or so to make like a smart, that's a, obviously a product mm -hmm. that could now, using these low-cost sensors, could be a lot more useful where it could actually measure the speed of the ball and, and such. Um, so anyway, so we ha we're having lots of fun collaborations like that. And as far as funding, would, would a study like what you're doing with the uh, voice recognition and the voice analysis, would that be something that's being funded by a, like a share care with, yes. with this device yeah. and that kind of right. thing? Yeah. So, so that's a contract with the company. Uh, sometimes we also uh, seek uh, like federal grants together with companies, mm -hmm. uh, with National Science Foundation, Na National Institute of Health. Um, so yeah, so our funding comes from a mixture of places. Did we get out all the information that we needed to about what we got going on over there? Want to make sure we cover 
all the, we always ask, all the what goodies. do you need? And it sounds like you want people to go to the website and sign up. So we'll put that yes, in the blog post. Yes. Sign up for and the if you are, trial. And if you are a if you are an entrepreneur with a startup where you're excited about uh, wearables or mm-hmm. AR, VR, come talk to us because um, especially with startups, uh, my lab, we're off, often kind of the early R&D for those companies. Uh, we can help them get get launched and get going. And IPAT, the ipat.georgiatech.edu, mm-hmm. that was a site to go to for the study. Is that, was that what well, you yeah, were so saying? Not to get caught up in the acronym soup of Georgia mm-hmm. Tech, but my lab is the Interactive Media, Interactive Media Technology Center. The Wearable Computing Center is part of that. If you go to www.imtc.gatech.edu is where you could sign up for the study. IPAT is like our mothership organization, (laughs) you know, Institute of People and Technology. So actually it's a um, interdisciplinary research institute that spans tons of research centers around campus that all come together. Okay. And and so on the webpage, where where do you sign up? Is it the... Well, there uh, should be um, a link. Wearable computer ebook, wireless span... Share care. Yes, share care. So okay. Yes. So we'll put the links to that. Mm-hmm. And when yes. you look, and when you're looking at the website, it's you can see it very easily. They have mm-hmm. some very large photo dot, mm-hmm. um, tiles there that uh, have links to to the information behind that, so you can easily check that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll help you get website. to a million. Uh, okay, great. Users. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a recruiting <laughs> challenge. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if you are coming back and checking this show out by podcast, if you've not done so already, you'll see the Apple logo in the upper left-hand corner of the show page. Follow that over to the iTunes store where the Health Connect South Radio Show podcast lives and subscribe to us so that you can get the new episode downloaded straight to your device for the drive to work, walking the dog, working out in the in the gym on the treadmill whatever the case may be for you and we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks because that's what we're all about here trying to get the word out you might just be putting some information in the hands of someone that you care about that makes a big difference in their personal or professional lives so we'll say thanks in advance for that mary beth thanks for taking some time and it's been interesting i love this kind of stuff in in terms of the technology History of computable of wearables was that on loan at iPad or is that a permanent well, no, display? So we actually um, curated that and created that exhibition, mm-hmm. and it's been traveling around the world. We can put up a, a link to. I, I don't remember okay. exactly where it is it's, and where it's going. It's really going, neat. You see yeah. some of these things from the 1980s, and it was a backpack, and it's interesting to see the evolution of the wearable computing over the but years. But there is also a free ebook companion for it. So if anyone okay. wanted to check out the artifacts that are in it, you could just go get the okay, free ebook. Okay, so look at the healthconnectsouth.com uh, uh, website after mm-hmm. this for the links. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Mary Beth, thanks for making some time. Jay Schaefer joining yes. us in the studio as thanks, CW. Almost always. Sixty percent of the time it happens every time. <laughs> <laughs> and to all the folks at Health Connect South, uh Russ Lapari and Shivani Goswami over there. We want to say thanks for all of your support in making the show happen. And everybody out there who checked us out today, we want to say thanks for your time. We'll see you same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>